0: welcome to mind body health and politics i'm your host dr richard lewis miller the mission of mind body health and politics is to enhance your physical and psychological well-being and encourage community I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We like hanging around with one another. We like doing things together. Just look at all the things that we do, ranging from sewing circles to watching football games, playing cards, playing ball, getting together to eat. We love getting together to eat. We love hanging out together. There's no question about it. And we're friendly about it. However, we must also be aware that there is a small percentage of us who are very different. They are predators, they are avaricious, and they would rule by a very different form of government than the democracy and republic that we've been experimenting with for over 200 years. These people prefer dictatorships, ruling from the top down, and if anything they might prefer that we be subjects rather than citizens. You all recall that we threw off the yoke of being subjects way back in our revolution against England in the late 1700s. So, in the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We must stay aware and maintain the democracy and republic that we have It's not an entitlement. It's not a given. It's something we have to work for. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of having as our guest Brian Anderson, Dr. Brian Anderson. He's a psychiatrist and a clinical professor in the University of California, San Francisco, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's affiliated with the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, and the UCSF Neuroscape. Of equal interest is that in 2018, he led an important, important, (laughs) what's happening with me today? He led an important pilot clinical trial of psilocybin-assisted group therapy for demoralized long-term AIDS survivors. We want to hear a lot more about this research. Welcome, Brian.
1: Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me.
0: How did you originally get involved in doing psychedelic research brian and and when was that?
1: It was a while ago now you know as a as a young man, I was uh lucky to have a number of mentors and teachers who were able to sort of point me in the direction of of this field, one of them notably is Charlie Grobe, who I actually get to work with these days, uh, who's a psychiatrist at u c l a you know Charlie was one of the people early on who encouraged me to go to medical school and train as a psychiatrist, and so I've had Really, for like going back about 20 years now, I've had exposure to this field. And early on, I was actually not doing clinical research. I was working with uh, anthropologists and sociologists who were studying the use of psychedelics in community settings, particularly in religious settings. And I even started working with the anthropologist Bia labachi who's a Brazilian specialist who studies ayahuasca. I started. Um, investigating community uses of psychedelics almost 20 years ago. And then more recently, I've transitioned into clinical research, like clinical trials.
0: Charlie Grobe, Dr. Charlie Grobe, is a pioneer in psychedelic research. You know, he had the courage to keep knocking at the door of the government until they allowed him to do some research starting way back. But as you well know, it has not been for many years what you might say a popular field. I mean, in a way it was a dangerous field to go into sort of like hypnosis or human sexuality where you could, you could hurt your career by going into psychedelics, but that hasn't been the case for you. It's been okay to be a researcher. Is that right?
1: In the, in the last few years, it's certainly been, um, a much more open field in academic psychiatry or or mental health professional, you know, studies to say you're interested in investigating psychedelics as potential treatments for mental health conditions and not just as drugs that could harm you or harm your brain. I, I do remember when I was first in training and, you know, in medical school, we people were still discouraged from going into this field. It wasn't talked about as openly or as um, optimistically as it is today. And there was even a really nice piece, I believe, it was published in the MAPS Bulletin by the late Dr. Uh, Andrew Sewell, a psychiatrist and neurologist who had been working at Harvard and then Yale. And he wrote this really great piece called, So You Want to Be a Psychedelic Researcher? Even though she had, was doing work with psychedelics and the cannabinoids at the time, he um, was still discouraging young investigators from even talking about this, really, until there was sort of postdoc years and already on faculty. So just in the last 10 years, that's really changed quite a bit compared to when I was sort of first getting into this field.
0: When I was in graduate school, we had a lecture one time by a famous professor from Stanford, Ernest Hilgard. And Hilgard made his reputation and became a full professor as a rat psychologist. That's what we called them. You know, he did research on rats in laboratories. But the lecture he came to give us was on hypnosis, and he had switched from rat psychology to studying hypnosis. So after the lecture, I went over to him and I said, how is it that you spent so much of your career doing this scientific research on rats, and now as a full professor, you're, you're studying and researching and lecturing on hypnosis? And he smiled and he said to me, Richard, if I would have started in hypnosis, I never would have had an ap- academic career. So what I did was I got to be a full professor with with tenure, and then I switched to what I was interested in the entire time. Y- you were very fortunate. You were, be able, you were able to go into psychedelic research almost immediately.
1: You're, you're right. I, I've been very lucky that I even got to be involved in clinical research with psychedelics starting when I was a, a resident at UCSF. And Part of that is that, you know, it's sort of something that's happening now. It's sort of a change of the times. But also UCSF, and I would say the West Coast, is certainly more open to this work and has been encouraging of people doing rigorous clinical research in this area for a number of years.
0: We're going to be talking about your research in psilocybin. Before that, though, I have a a question you may have an answer to. I don't myself have a really great answer, which is, For the most part, it appears that the research around the country right now, and there is more of it, no question, at NYU, at Johns Hopkins, Berkeley, UCLA, is on psilocybin. And part of that we know is because of Roland Griffith's breakthrough work on psilocybin at Johns Hopkins. But do you have any other ideas about why the focus on psilocybin? Rather than LSD?
1: I mean, there's a number of historical reasons, I think, why psilocybin has been investigated so often in biomedical settings for the last 20 years. But I would say, for me, particular, I think it's fascinating to work with classic psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD, but psilocybin is more available for clinical research. It does, you can get it in what's called a, um, a GMG formulation. So it's something that is like all pharmaceutical grade as if it were to be sold to patients in the medical market. Um, you can get that for research now. You couldn't a few years ago, but that was available. It's shorter acting than LSD, right? So we can imagine a, a patient who maybe you know has, especially in the area of palliative care or people with end of life distress, existential distress, that if they have any medical comorbidities, if they're older, putting them through a eight to 10 plus hour experience is it going to be a lot more taxing for them and for the clinical team than it would be if someone were to have a four, five, six hour experience that you have to have at least, you know, one, if not two people there supporting them the entire time.
0: And do you understand the reason why in so much of the research, two therapists are used during the psychedelic experience?
1: And also, there's a number of different opinions on that and, and how that can be done. I'm, I'm aware of a of a study that I'm excited to see get published soon by um, colleagues at the Sunstone Therapeutics in Maryland, where they actually had one therapist sit with a participant, but then they had a, a senior facilitator go around and check on the different rooms where participants were, and they had four participants being treated at the same time in separate rooms, and they would kind of have one between one to two, depending on when during the session it was. But, you know, that was feasible, and I'm looking forward to seeing those results. Most of the time, however, yes, there are two facilitators or guides or therapists in the room for a number of reasons. I mean, one is, especially if you're doing a a five or six hour long segment treatment session with someone, and the therapist has to get up and use the bathroom and has to go eat. Uh, they need a break briefly. You want someone in the room with their patient who is familiar with the patient that knows their case and can respond to them if something were to come up. You wouldn't want someone to just step in and say, oh, I'm here just for the next few minutes while your therapist is away and then have, you know, a clinical situation that someone with familiarity with that patient's needs need to be in the room. That is just like logistically, that's... That is a good reason to have at least two.
0: The the reason I ask about it is I'm concerned about the model Mm -hmm. because of the expense. We're not going to be able to, we can, I mean, I, I take that back. We can offer treatment with two therapists to the public, but only the super wealthy will be able to afford two therapists. So we definitely need a different model. And I'm, intrigued by this model you just described of four people in different rooms, because obviously with closed circuit television, all four of them could be monitored at the same time, and the therapist could get into any of those rooms if need be right away, and there could be backup. But I'm even more interested in hearing about your work with group therapy with psychedelics because I do believe that's the future. I think that's the only way we're going to make this affordable, given that the length of the sessions are four to six hours. You multiply that by a therapist's hourly fee, and it's going to be out of the range of, of too many people. So let's hear about your research. Take it from the top about your research with psilocybin.
1: Sure. And so the, the pilot study that you're referring to is, uh, you know, our team conducted this at the UCSF back in 2018 and 2019, it was, it was published in The Clinical Medicine, which is an open access journal in the Lancet family. We published that in 2020. And what we demonstrated with that pilot clinical trial that was open label, so there was no blinding and there was no control group, but we demonstrated that the early safety and, and feasibility of offering a moderate to high dose psilocybin that was given to participants in an individual setting but all the preparation and follow up care was done in the group setting. So I'll explain that a little bit more. We First off, we worked with long-term AIDS survivors who had moderate to severe demoralization. Demoralization is a clinical syndrome that sort of captures a lot of different types of what you might call existential distress, and it's characterized by hopelessness and helplessness and the loss of meaning and purpose in life. So you see this frequently in oncology settings and other palliative care settings. And we um, worked with long-term AIDS survivors who were, in our case, all gay identified men over the age of 50 who had been diagnosed with HIV or AIDS early in the AIDS epidemic prior to the availability of any meaningful clinical treatments that could prolong their life. Yes. So, so they were all told that they only had maybe months, if not a couple of years to live. And even though these gentlemen did survive, many of them getting on experimental treatments and then what became standard of care treatments for them early on, they also lost a lot of people. They had a lot of close loved ones and friends that they cared for who did pass away. And so a number of our participants also, I think had survivor guilt and had gone through a lot of complex grief for just many people in their community over the years.
0: So all of the people in the study had been given terminal diagnoses. Yeah, correct. And they were all dealing with whatever was going on inside of them Mm -hmm. with regard to knowing that the end was very near. Yeah. These are end-of-life people.
1: They were. They were end-of-life patients who survived. And many of them thought maybe they'd live a few years, and now actually, in in their 50s and 60s, these gentlemen are dealing with other issues. They're they're coping with living longer than they ever anticipated, having to deal with having been on disability their whole life, and now, you know, not having a a pension from work, trying to live for many of them, which is actually a pretty isolated life. They've lost partners and close friends, um, and a lot of their community is gone. And being in the Bay Area, San Francisco is very different. So a lot of the social supports that used to be around are not not here for many of the people that joined our study. So they, and some of them actually have dealt with other conditions since then, certainly chronic pain, viral hepatitis. A number of them have had oncologic or so cancer diabetes in in the interim. So they've been dealing with other things, other conditions that could be life-threatening for them. And so there's a really kind of a complex medical history that many of them are carrying still. And now that they're getting older, some of them, you know, are thinking about what is it's going to be like to get older and frail and, and you know, pass away maybe from something else that's not HIV AIDS. But they're in that age group where they have to now think about this again in their life.
0: And when you were meeting with them prior to the psilocybin treatment and then thereafter... Mm-hmm. Tell us about their mental state, their relationship to dying, mm-hmm. their fears and anxieties. What can you share with us about that?
1: Sure. I one of the things that I found incredibly interesting by working with this this cohort of men, eight survivors, is that when we would get a group together, we in this pilot study, we enrolled and truly 18 participants. So they were split up into three groups of six. We set up that because we thought six would be a manageable number that we could offer good clinical care in this setting using the model that we did of the type of group therapy and then this individual psilocybin sessions. We thought we could manage that with about six in a group. And then we did. We showed that that was feasible. And we had to build in not just preparing them for psilocybin, but also... Managing a group, doing group therapy. Some of them had group therapy experience, some of them had individual therapy experience, some of them were pretty new to talk therapy um, altogether. But over a period of four preparatory sessions as a group, and then one visit before that, having just met with the group therapists. So each person would meet with the two group therapists ahead of time just to get to know them. But in the four group therapy sessions, we had to get them to get to know each other build trust with each other, build trust with our team as well. And then learn about what psilocybin therapy is like and make sure that as they were going to go through, what for some of them was a pretty strong experience, that they would, you know, have some idea about how to manage that, navigate the things that could come up and, and also just prepare themselves psychologically to make good use of that time, ask questions of the experience, go into issues from the past and sort of see what things that can maybe open up emotionally that then would be good for us to work together as a group, discussing in the sessions afterwards when there was not psilocybin. But there was a group of five other participants and two therapists. And these five other participants had all just gone through their own experiences. And now we have a limited amount of time together to kind of unpack that.
0: And were these 18 people Three groups of six, psychedelically naive, or had some of them had experience with psychedelics prior to this pilot study.
1: Certainly, certainly, some of our participants had psychedelic experience. Some of them had quite a bit of psychedelic experience. A handful of them had almost no psychedelic experience. So it was quite quite a range. But the the people who had, had even a, a lot of experience with psychedelics back in the 70s and the 80s. It had been years, if not decades, since, since their use. So these were not people who were using psychedelics on a regular basis leading up to the study.
0: Were there some people who you eliminated because of their background, something in their history that you said maybe they're not a good candidate for this kind of treatment?
1: Well, certainly we, you know, did a very kind of thorough medical and psychiatric screening. And then we also, you know, screened people based off of just, you know, how they interviewed with us to see, are they going to be able to be a good fit for doing this in a group setting? So it's an extra challenge in screening for a study with a group intervention is, we want the participants to quickly be able to feel that they can build bonds and trust each other. And if we thought that being in the group was going to be too challenging or, that you know, maybe their needs would really be better fit in um, individual therapy and they couldn't probably make good use of the group setting, then, then we didn't include those, those folks in the study.
0: Did you have certain markers that you agreed upon that if people hit, on those markers, they would be eliminated. Certain kind of diagnostic background, or something like that.
1: Oh, certainly. There's there's quite a list of exclusion criteria in our in our protocol is published online. If, if people go to clinical trials. Can you give God, us
0: the reference to that publication so that our readers and listeners can go look that up? That's very essential information, Brian.
1: Sure. I mean, any clinical trial conducted with an experimental medication in the U.S. today over the last several years should be listed on clinicaltrials.gov. And if you go there and you type psilocybin and you also type demoralization or AIDS, you'll be able to find our our study and find our, our protocol.
0: Okay, everybody. You heard that. Clinicaltrials.gov. I think we've been referenced that before. I think Andrew Penn told us about that too. You must know Andrew because you work near each other.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's proceed with the story. You've got three groups of six. You've got 18 candidates. You've given them five preparatory sessions, four and one, and then proceed for us. Sure. Oh, and you were telling us something about their excuse me, you were telling us something about their their mental state, their their anxiety, their fears of death, the kinds yeah. of things that come up.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing that I found striking and I, I just sort of enjoyed seeing how things uh kind of organically unfolded in these groups is that a number of these men had had not been around a lot of other long-term survivors of HIV. And certainly some of them did, and that was a lot of their social network, but some of them had had not or had been really challenging or uncomfortable for them to be around people who were kind of from that era. And so it was a big day, the first group therapy session that we had when we had six long-term survivors all spending time together. Um, And, you know, people would start just talking about, the 80s and the 90s, and and things that happened years ago, and it just brought up a lot for them. Just being in the group, um, and I, you know, one kind of um, technique that we used to to um, to talk about the group sessions before people were taking psilocybin is we would we wouldn't actually call them preparation sessions. We wouldn't say that we were preparing for the treatment. We would say. You know, in this study, maybe half the treatment is taking the medication, and half the treatment is the work that we do right here in the group. So, you know, treatment starts now. The, the healing work, you know, starts now in this group setting. Um exactly. And, and I, I think the participants took that very seriously.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And were they fairly quickly open with each other about their their fears and their uncertainties?
1: And. A number of them were. And I think the group setting is challenging and it's not going to be the ideal setting for everyone who wants to go through a form of psychedelic care or psychedelic therapy. But I think the group setting actually pushed people to work on some things that they came to the study looking for help with. Help with building bonds and connections, opening up emotionally with themselves and with others, getting comfortable with emotional intimacy again. The group setting if if it's held as a safe space can really support that type of psychological work and so i think you know overall the group setting was a really nice context for a number of the participants to open up and and richard i want to respond to one of your questions about um you know what were their fears and what were they sort of presenting with and not not everyone there and actually maybe most people there were not necessarily focused on a fear of death it wasn't something that was articulated by many people, but a lot of them certainly felt stuck. And they felt that there was some helplessness, that like they couldn't get through some things that have been weighing them down or maybe haunting them for many years. And they wanted to try to work, work through some problems with the support of others or and with the support of the, of the experimental medication, the psilocybin. A number of them just had a lot of anxieties or... You know in the study itself what they worked through was not so much things that had happened to them or around them in the aids epidemic but was as we see awesome with these experimental psychedelic like, you know, like studies they worked through challenges from childhood traumas from earlier in their lives other things that had shaped them and and, and sort of led to emotional struggles in their life much longer before they were diagnosed with HIV AIDS. So it really was a, a spectrum of um, conditions and issues that the group was working on all at the same time. But what did bring them together certainly was this demographic of being long-term survivor, gay-identified men in the Bay Area, who met this criteria of demoralization, again, which has like a sort of a core constructs of some sense of helplessness and a loss of meaning and purpose. And I want to come back to that. It's certainly relevant to you know our discussion on how this maybe relates to palliative care settings. Is you know when people have had had challenges with maintaining social support, and then they've lost a lot of their range of trajectories or things they thought they were going to do because of a serious or chronic illness. You know where do they derive purpose and meaning? That is a, a challenge that many of our participants shared
0: did do you find in in getting to know them did you, oh, before i ask that did you conduct some of the group therapy sessions yourself
1: i i did but i want to highlight we had other group therapists who also not just conducted the intervention but really helped us shape it and uh, determined the, the content of it, Alicia Danforth, a good friend and colleague of mine, is a psychologist who actually worked um, at UCLA in a number of studies with Dr. Grobe there. She was, I believe, a therapist for all of the three group cohorts that we had. Rob Deroff, a uh, psychiatrist at the San Francisco VA and UCSF who's been conducting group therapy for men with HIV in San Francisco for many years. We were really lucky to have him be part of this team and help us shape what this intervention would would look like ultimately. And uh, Dr. Chris Stoffer was at UCSF and is now at Oregon Health and State, Oregon uh, Health and Science University in Portland. He was a group therapist as well, sort of, sort of one of the complaints.
0: So how long did the follow-up or integration or whatever you called The therapy sessions that followed the psychedelic experience. What did you, how did you refer to the therapy sessions that followed the experience? Did you have a name for them?
1: Yeah, we use terms like integration rather. Integration.
0: Yeah. Okay. How long did the integration sessions go on for? What were the length of time of the meetings? How frequently? Tell us the protocol, please.
1: Sure. So going back to the, the four group sessions that people had before psilocybin. After that, we actually had asked all the participants not to be in touch with each other, like outside of the of the trial setting, while they were all going through their psilocybin treatment days. So that first cohort of six, we had one treatment room that the UCSF Department of Psychiatry or provided for us for the study. And so we were and we were very lucky. It was a really nice room set up in the Langley Porter Psychiatric Hospital. And we were able to see one participant at a time there. After that first cohort of six, a couple of things changed. One thing was that we were actually able to get access to another room that we set up just temporarily for this study. So we had two cytoloid treatment rooms just down the hall from each other. And so for the cohorts two and three in this in this trial we were able to have participants each go through their own psilocybin treatment session, but we'd have two in the same day. So one thing that I really appreciated about being able to do that was that the participants could actually start the day together. They could sort of wish each other well. We started the uh, session with a bit of an opening ritual to kind of ground and do some breathing to kind of get people focused and relieve any anxieties before going into the treatment then they would be in their own individual rooms with their own facilitators with them throughout the experience. And at the end of the day, when they were both back to sort of their normal thinking and kind of mental status, if, if they felt comfortable, if they wanted to we invited the participants to actually come together in one room and talk with each other and start that process of debriefing with someone else in the group and not just with the facilitators. So, Sort of the second of their cohort, the last 12 people in the study, they got to have that connection right at the end of the treatment day. And then once someone had gone through a medication visit like that, they could talk to other people who already had. So let's say in cohort two, two people went through on Monday, two people went through on Wednesday. Those four could all text or call each other if they wanted their touch base, which for many of them was really nice to talk to someone else after they've gone through it. Mm -hmm. Two people went on Friday, and then the next week, all six were back together in the group to debrief and and process Mm -hmm. together.
0: Mm -hmm. And what was the dose that they took in this first psilocybin treatment?
1: The dose was similar to what had been done in the NYU and Johns Hopkins studies with patients with cancer who received psilocybin and and talk therapy. We used the dose for the first six participants of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And that came out to about, because it's based off of their weight, I think it was between like 21 and maybe let's say around like 26 or 27 milligrams. And then in the cohorts two and three, we actually had planned to use a higher dose. We showed that 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 first dose was well tolerated by the first six people. And so the protocol said that if that went well without, you know, adverse events of of any kind of concern based off of the dose, we would go to a higher dose of 0.36 milligrams per kilogram. And so I think the highest dose that we gave to anyone as like a absolute dose was maybe 32 milligrams of of psilocybin.
0: And looking back on it, Going forward, would you use the higher dose or the lower dose?
1: That's a good question. I know that a lot of trials these days are using 25 milligrams as like a standard dose. And some nice research out of Johns Hopkins, Albert Garcia Romeo has has showed that if you use a, a dose based off of, that's adjusted by weight, that it doesn't, that doesn't seem to indicate that people will have like a more intense experience or more likely to have what they call a mystical type experience if you use weight dose, uh, weight dosing. But I would say clinically, I got I got the sense that dose closer to 30 milligrams seemed to just more consistently provide people that sort of breakthrough experience where they were very immersed. And maybe it was easier for them to kind of let go of an, of some anxieties or kind of hold on to be trying to attend to what's going on in the room versus their own internal experience, and yet, yeah, I don't think I think that those close to thirty is not something that would necessarily you know be overwhelming or or you know too challenging for people who were well prepared with preparatory sessions.
0: This is very important information because, as we both know people are also experimenting with psilocybin by themselves all over the country. And mm-hmm. the more information, you know, even though they would be better off with a guide and they'd be better off with a with a, an excellent setting, people are going to do what they're going to do. And at least if they have information on dosage, you know, it could be, you know, very, uh, very important for them.
1: Well, again, this is, we are talking about like a Highly structured setting in the context of a trial with lots of screening ahead of time, multiple sessions of preparatory therapy versus, you know, what, for instance, what's been rolled out in in Oregon, where there may be, you know, one preparatory visit before someone undergoes a a dosing session or what's going to be, you know, a state regulated, legalized setting. That's just, that's very different having that much preparation. Ahead of time, and then also comparing. It makes it
0: great. You're saying. Let me just get very clear on this. This is Mm -hmm. important here, Brian. Yeah. You appear to be saying that the protocol that's being used by many private practitioners of an hour or two before, then this experience, and then an hour or two after, could be beefed up a lot, particularly with the sessions before the experience? Did I understand you correctly?
1: Well, I'll go back to the the frame of the, of the study, which was that we selected for people with a lot of, a long history of mental health challenges and struggles, years of distress and trouble coping with that, having tried a number of different medications, talk therapies, group therapies, and we're still looking for help. We, we selected for a group of people with a lot of, who may bring a lot of challenges to this work and need a lot of support. And and I wouldn't, you know, advise doing work with uh, a, a group of people like that with so much need on just like a short-term basis. Now, if if people in these non-medical settings, non clinical trial settings are doing work, my understanding is sometimes that is actually, it's not just a like a short-term preparation, but sometimes it could be in a setting of like, Long-term ongoing care, long-term ongoing psychotherapy, or you know, another thing that I've been exposed to and, and familiar with are religious settings and ceremonial settings where there's a community built around the work. Sometimes that's been in, in existence for years if not generations. And so, I think the context is so important in determining what's going to be right for for different people and their needs.
0: But I certainly am getting the impression. And correct me if I'm mistaken here, that the more treatment-resistant the person, the longer their history of emotional issues, the more you'd want to add preparatory work before the experience, as well as lengthier follow-up after. Am I correct in that?
1: Yeah. That's a good way to summarize it. Thanks, I
0: That's important. Thank you. Yeah. Because because my concern, I'm sure yours and others around the country, is that people will start looking for a one-weekend fix to everything that they're dealing with. You know, like, this is the panacea. This is the magic mushroom. And I'm going to, you know, have a session, have an experience, have another session, and all of a sudden, all my worries and, and, and mm-hmm. cares will be gone and I'll be a different person. And and that, that could be extremely demoralizing if it doesn't happen when an yeah. expectation was set up. Yeah. Whereas if the expectation is set up that, Hey, this is a big job, you know, this isn't a, a job for a shovel. It's a backhoe and a, and a, and a front loader and, and, and it's going to take some time. It's a more realistic uh, approach.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I'll, I'll give slightly the the other side of that, which is um have mentioned uh Dr. Charlie Grobe and Dr. Alicia Danforth. I'm on a team with them now, along with Dr. Tony Bossis. And oh, are,
0: I just interviewed Tony Bossis recently. I, yeah,
1: he told me. And we're we're looking to we will be launching a, a trial later this year of suicide and therapy for adults who are near the end of life and have and have demoralization and distress. And part of that trial is designed to try to find a way to make this pragmatic or applicable in general clinical settings where there will be a limited number of preparatory sessions and and integration sessions. However, one thing we've specifically done with that intervention, which again is working with people with complex conditions, complex medical care and, and distress, is to have the study be embedded in medical centers where these patients are already being treated where participants will be recruited and be suggested to the trial by um, clinical teams that know them and know their care. And then we'll be following up with them afterwards. It's almost like thinking about the psilocybin as a psilocybin therapy, if it's before, during, and after. It's almost like a brief consultation with the primary team who will sort of give a warm handoff to the psilocybin facilitators, some of the primary team may be involved in the care during the trial if, if they're connected to the research, but there'll be a warm handoff to the primary caregivers afterwards to hopefully continue the work and support for people after the trial is over. And so sort of I think in, embedding it in the clinical systems where these patients are being treated in one certainly makes the, the science, the data more generalizable to what this will look like when hopefully we are able to offer this in a safe and regulated way to patients in this country. Um, But it also will just be more integrated with their usual care. And hopefully that kind of continues their, their, the work that they do after psilocybin. So it's not just three or four sessions or two sessions, whatever it is, but there is some continuity that allows them to continue processing those experiences in productive ways.
0: So now tell us about these 18 people and their results. Sure. What did you learn about them after the fact?
1: Well, one, one thing that was, was great to learn from the first cohort when we went through the planned four sessions of follow-up group therapy with them, many of them said at the end, we need more time. We need more time to talk through this, to spend time with each other, to kind of process what came up. And so, after the first cohort of six participants, we we did a protocol modification, and we offered six follow-up group therapy sessions to our participants because because of their requests and them helping us think through what would make this effective for people going through this type of care. That was one one lesson. Um, another lesson was that we found that it was it was. Safe to offer this in the way that we did. I say that even though there there were adverse events, but the there were not serious adverse events like leading to a hospitalization or or a, a severe outcome. Of, um, of some of these, you know, things that did come up: high blood pressure, anxiety, you know, fear, things like that that, that happened during the day. We were able to, to manage those, and, and there were long term consequences. Of other so people had challenging experiences during the session, but but certainly you know, doing this higher-dose psilocybin work in a group context was was hard for some people. And it did bring up anxieties and fears and people did have some challenging time even in the days after. One participant, a few days after their psilocybin session actually had a, a, a traumatic, a recollection of a traumatic event. Like it was a very clear, strong recollection that, that came to them and was very distressing. And this happened when they were not there had a treatment visit with us. They were not ready to process it with the group. We had to, they had to talk with one of our clinicians one on one over the phone, check in, and then with a lot of encouragement and care and time, we're able to kind of open up in the group setting and, and talk it through. Which ultimately, sure this participant, they said it was very helpful. It was very cathartic to discuss it in the group, but it was a challenge. And in my my you know I'm, I'm glad that we. Built enough trust with the participants so that when this came up, again, outside of one of their visits, they were able to eventually reach out and talk with us. But I'm not saying that this was all easy for them or for the team. We, we had to work, and but ultimately, you know, it was a, a safe experience for our participants.
0: What about during the sessions, the psychedelic sessions themselves, mm-hmm. what can you tell us about... What I call unwanted complications of medicine, and what the medical community calls side effects, I I don't like side effects because they they imply that it happens on your side, and we they really don't. They happen on your whole body. So I call them unwanted complications. And what like were, were people did, did some people throw up? Did they regurgitate? Did some people get irpy? Did they wh- what kind of negative stuff went on in that regard, physical and psychological?
1: Sure. Some of the participants became rather anxious, particularly as they were not so used to psychedelics and what their effects could be. A few of them were unsteady on their feet needed just physical assistance. felt nausea and headaches. We moved towards the end of the session or met the next day. A couple of our participants became rather hypertensive, so they had high blood pressure. You know, during the session, which could be related to. Was, you know feeling stress and having anxiety, and it seemed like people who were having more intense anxiety were having high, the high blood pressure, but there were not any sort of bad outcomes from the high blood pressure itself that we were able to detect in the participants. That's okay.
0: Let me allow me to interrupt and ask a question on the blood pressure. Yeah, I would imagine you set parameters for the blood pressure so that if it went above a certain number, you would give some medicine to bring it down. Was it as ever necessary to do that?
1: Well, you know, like like in an, an emergency room setting, we, we wouldn't necessarily treat the number of their blood pressure. We, we would see if there were things that we could do to help help the blood pressure calm down, just by helping them relax, deep breathing, calm. That actually did help help the pressure come come down. And you know, one of our participants uh, was had elevated blood pressure, kind of on and off over a few hours, but ultimately would help that person also was them calming down. And allowing the room to kind of making the room darker, really getting them to close their eyes and go internal and deal with their anxiety by sort of going into the experience and not trying to sight it. So we didn't actually give medicines, though we we could have if if we thought it was dangerous and that yes. that would have been helpful. Yeah, we were, we were prepared pe- for that. Yeah.
0: Would you say people with high blood pressure? Are not candidates for this kind of treatment?
1: That, that is a exclusion that ha- has been used in all of these clinical trials as people with chronic high blood pressure or who could have a, a negative outcome more likely if their blood pressure were to become suddenly high and, and persist at high. If someone had a history of like a, a stroke, you know, they would be at higher risk of having a, a severe negative outcome from that complication of their treatment.
0: And on the physiological side, are cardiovascular issues the main issues for exclusion, or are there other physical issues that, that would would warrant exclusion?
1: Cardiovascular concerns are something that always needs to be considered with, with psychedelic therapy, be that with psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, as has been studying for PTSD, Yes, yeah, certainly people with a history, a recent history of, of cardiac disease, you'd want to think very carefully as the benefits outweigh the potential risks uh, yeah. of being in a study like this or undergoing care in a non-study setting. Um, and but many almost all the studies have ex- excluded people with, you know, most cardiac diseases, major cardiac diseases. So there's not a lot of scientific information to guide yeah. when and how it's it could be appropriate. But certainly, and ar- an, an arrhythmia would be a significant concern. So, someone having a, a dangerous heart rhythm, if they have certain things that predispose them to to that, you would really think twice about it, giving someone like that a, a higher dose of psychedelic medicine.
0: How about a person like myself wearing a pacemaker defibrillator?
1: <laughs> I think you're, you'd be you might be asking for trouble. Yeah.
0: How much after the psychedelic experience in time did you follow them up? And what can you tell us about that, please?
1: So we, again, we worked with our first six participants for four group therapy sessions. We worked with the next 12 for six group therapy sessions after the medication. And what we what we assessed as our primary clinical endpoint, so that the pre-post change and demoralization Yes. Uh, what was about three weeks after the medication for each of the participants. So at about three weeks out is where we saw, is where we first measured sort of change from where they were at with their subjective demoralization before starting the intervention. And we followed them for another three months afterwards. So we were in after the medication. So three months out, we visited with them again. And we asked them about their sense of distress and depression and anxiety and quality of life, and also any um, adverse events that may have come up in the time. So, in total, we were we only followed them for about three months after this after this
0: treatment. And what what's the headline of how they did?
1: The the headline is first off in this. Uncontrolled, open-label pilot study. We demonstrated the feasibility for the first time in modern modern clinical research to combine an element of group therapy with using a high dose of a psychedelic in a medically in a patients with past medical history of serious illness. We demonstrated the safety and feasibility of doing that, and that's the that's kind of the important scientific claim to make here. Again, because we we didn't have a control group, we don't know how much any sort of self-reported benefit was just from being in a study. And certainly some people, I can tell you, felt subjectively better just after the first few sessions of good therapy before they even took the psilocybin. So certainly there's a there's a variety of, of ways that people will respond. What I can tell you is that after the psilocybin, when we asked them about symptoms of demoralization, depression, anxiety, many of them felt significantly, uh, notably better just within like the 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 week after that, taking the medication. And that, that improvement persisted for most of them at three weeks and, and even at, at three months later. So specifically looking at demoralization, which is what they were recruited because we knew that they had moderate to severe demoralization. That looked much better at weeks and then a few months later for many of them, but not for all of them. And I think that's yes. another part of the story is that some of them actually reported you know, their sense of, Helplessness and hopelessness, sense of meaning and purpose was didn't seem all that changed. And yet, what I, what I loved about being an investigator on in the study, but also getting to be one of the clinicians that had the privilege of of working with these participants going going through this, is that there were things in the, some of their lives that changed that we didn't capture in our skills. And that was a great lesson as well, understanding how. Relationships changed, or their openness to connecting with others was something that for some of them was very different after the study compared to before. Some of their experiences of deep, long held shame about being gay, about having HIV, changed. And some of our participants, seemingly overnight, they were just much more open and uh, confident about who they were, and they wanted to share that with people even if they still had mood symptoms or anxiety symptoms. And yet there were other things like, you know, anxiety about being in public and going out and eating in restaurants, just being around crowds for some of our participants just dissipated. And they were able to have things that they wanted in their social life, and in their support system that they hadn't allowed themselves for years.
0: And how did being involved in this study Affect you personally? What uh, effect did it have on you, Brian?
1: As, as a psychiatrist, it, it made me even more curious about what we can offer people who are seeking help with distress and and, and traumas from their past and, and challenges in their day to day lives. Now, it made me want to see what else we can learn about, sort of. Good ways of combining medication treatments with tried and true and evidence-based talk therapies to, to support people in a sort of structured and, and rigorous way that also provided me some hope and optimism that what we do in conventional allopathic psychiatric care continu- can continue to learn from traditional settings where psychoactive plants and psychoactive substances have been used for many generations, if not you know, hundreds of thousands of years for people's betterment, and that there's a way that we can find ways to fit this sometimes you know, radical type of care into conventional settings. Definitely came away from this experience of being again at UCSF in the Department of Psychiatry, working with many of my colleagues, and it took our large team, right, to, to put this together and make this work, and see patients, them who've never you know where we had experts in psychedelics be able to go through this and, and sign benefit. I'm certainly more optimistic about how we can sign ways to make psychedelic healing sit in the conventional settings and, and do that in respectful and safe ways.
0: Given that there is what's being referred to as a renaissance in psychedelic research, are you hopeful that you'll be allowed to continue Doing psychedelic research that the government will allow you to continue—you have good hope in that area, or what's the present status? I—I
1: I think at least the parts of, of the federal and state government that I interact with, as a clinical researcher and as a psychiatrist, are actually very open and encouraging to people doing good scientific work that has the public's interest and in public health in mind. I feel very encouraged that we can do more studies, and or even in, in places like in Oregon or Colorado, where there's going to be state regulated forms of psychedelic care. I think there's, a, there's actually a lot of openness and an eager to learn about how this could be done well. I'll, I'll share, Richard, that at UCSF, we actually have a, a research contract with the FDA that is where our team is partnering with a number of different groups out in the community that, that use psychedelics. And the point of this research is to understand what ways that people in non-medicalized settings um, have found ways to keep people safe when going through forms of psychedelic care. And also to share some of the lessons that they've learned of where people have been harmed or nearly harmed um, because of their psychedelic use, or maybe because of the context in which psychedelics are being used. And so there's a I, I take that FDA contract as, as a sign of a lot of openness to learn things that many people in the federal government, particularly in the sort of health and public health parts in the federal government have just acknowledged, they want to learn more about how this could be done well and safely. And so I think this is like a great time to uh, be doing research in this area and engaged with with these uh, structures of knowledge and knowledge and medical care.
0: You've made my day. What you are saying is such music to my ears. I took LSD for the first time in 1965. And as soon as I took it in graduate school, in psychology, I knew immediately of the huge healing potential that these medicines can have. And I've been waiting for over 50 years for the government to come around and allowing the kind of research that you're doing. And that's why it's music to my ears that I've lived long enough to see it happen. It's very exciting. And I thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule today, Brian, to share this information with us. Really appreciate your being here.
1: It's been a pleasure to talk about this work and I just want to thank you, Richard, and also always uh, thank the participants that were courageous enough to go through that study and trust us to to work with us on that, from that study that the long-term AIDS survivor community in San Francisco taught really so much. And I'm really, really appreciative of their participation in, in, that, in that science. Yes,
0: hear, hear to the courageous people who are volunteering to, to be part of these studies. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being today with us on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you to go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, where our programs are archived. You can also learn more about our interviews and some of the work that I've been doing in my two books, Psychedelic Medicine and the recently published Psychedelic Wisdom. And I look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.